We are going to continue our theme of outdoor lifestyle, things that we do for fun, and some things that we do for investment and where we live. We'll have a chat with a fellow about bicycles. It's bicycle season, especially if you're a fair weather rider. We'll also talk to a real estate broker about some of the things that have been going on in the industry. And the question that is often asked, are commission rates negotiable? I think you'll be surprised, if not happy, with what he has to say about that. And a little bit later on, we're going to talk about parcels of land in the Agricultural Land Reserve that are being sold off. And uh, according to a report that was released just this last week, uh, many people believe this land is being bought by speculators, thinking that they can build estate homes and perhaps even more development on these properties. Todd Talbot of Love It or List at Vancouver was on Vancouver Real Estate Today, which is heard at 11 o'clock on Saturdays on CKNW, and he talked about staging your home for sale and what to keep in mind. There's a lot of things you want to keep in mind. First of all, um, you know, it just popped into my head. I was just thinking about empty houses. You know, one of, one of the things about empty spaces is they don't, they don't reach out and grab you. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of putting some staging into an empty property. I, I try never to show a piece of property, even, even on the show, if we are looking through properties that we think are the right fit. Partially because on the show, obviously we have cameras. And, but the cameras do the same thing as your eyes. Sure. You don't want to show a piece of property that's just bland walls on bland carpet or bland hardwood. It doesn't elicit a certain feeling. So the principle behind staging a place is twofold. Number one, to give people a sense of space and scale, how a space can work. Yeah. So you need to be able to feel how that room is going to be with a king-size bed in it or that living room is going to feel with a full-size couch in it. And the other side of the coin is that emotional response. People are online eliminating properties based on criteria. Price, square footage, number of bedrooms, garage, all those types of things. By the time they get to the property, it's all emotion now. Sure. You drive up to the place. Staging starts outside. Absolutely. Curb appeal is a huge thing. So you drive up to the house. I don't know about you, but I fall into this trap. I drive up. Four seconds later, I've made a judgment about that house. Well, sure. And you know, I'll tell you one thing that I have often said to people is make sure your front door looks good. And the reason why is because that's the first thing somebody will touch. Here's the thing. WD-40, a little on the lock, a little on the hinges. Yeah. There's nothing worse than walking into a front door that you can't open the door or with Or has key, duct tape on it. Or has duct tape. Well, although duct tape is pretty sexy <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, you're swinging open the door. You want it to invite you in there. It's the little things that people overlook that become, they add up and they become objections in people's minds. Sure. And they're indicators to other things that might be problems in the house. So for me, it's an emotional thing. It's a visceral feeling. People walk into a house, they're making decisions on all levels of of using all of their emotions. And staging plays a big part in it. Okay, what about this idea that some realtors seem to think that you want to take away some of that personal emotion? So in other words... Take the pictures of your kids off the wall. Yep, depersonalize. Get get rid of all the toys. Get rid of, you know, and if you have a dog, for goodness sakes, or a cat, make sure there's no trace of any kind of smell in the place. Well, that's a given. Yeah. That, that's for sure. But what about this idea of stripping back? 
I'm, I'm a little anti-depersonalizing. I think that homes need to feel like homes. Yeah. Now, you don't want it to be cluttered. You want to pare down. But if it's a family home in a family neighborhood and you have kids and there's kids art on the fridge or there's great, you know, framed kids art on the walls, mm-hmm. leave that. Okay. If there's toys that are nicely put away, leave that. Mm-hmm. Chances are the people who are going to be buying that home is going to be a family. So showcase, yeah. it, showcase it in the way that they're going to use it. Okay, what about closets, for example, where you keep your clothes? Uh, this is where you can pull out some tricks. Get rid of... Everything 50... you haven't worn since 1980. Well, first of all, you should just do that for <laughs> like for your own soul. Um, but secondly, and by the way, and I'm coming over to clear out your closet. Um, but secondly, I do think that that's a space where people open it and they need to feel like there's tons of room. Yeah. So if you're moving, take... 50% of the stuff out of the house. We, you know, we walk through houses on the show, and it's shocking. So, <laughs> two points. Don't get me started on this topic. <laughs> Number one is clean your house. It's shocking the the cleanliness level, or lack thereof, in a house, and it turns people off like that. Yeah. So, clean it. Scrub it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be brand new, but it it's, does have to be squeaky clean. That's a great point, especially in the kitchen. And then it smells good, too. Yeah. And smell is a big factor. Oh, yeah. So, and then pare down. Get a storage unit. Pack stuff up. Throw it in a storage locker. Rent it for 100 bucks a month. It is money well spent. Yeah. I think, uh, as I say, the kitchen, I think the bathroom, they have to be spotless because totally. you, you want to feel like you're, you're moving into a home that was well cared for. And I think that's really important for people. You know, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about commissions in the past. And um, part of a, you know, a full service package that some, um, some agents offer is staging. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the deal. Either recommendations or they have their own staging stuff. I used to actually stage homes for about four or five years. I had a staging company called Condo Guys Staging. So I, I know this uh, inside out and backwards. So would you recommend then a seller hire somebody or rely on their realtor to to handle that part of it? I think you need to look at photos of, of properties that they've done before. Sometimes you can hire an agency to come in and do it. Sometimes you can do it yourself. Because the furniture that you might choose to sell a property with might be different from the furniture that you choose to live with. Mm-hmm. So um, you can do it yourself. You can rent uh, from staging companies. You don't have to use a full service. Right. So you can cut down on costs in that way. Or if your agent has uh, staging materials and they're good at it, then use them. Take away, tidy up, make it feel lived in and home-like. And if you have a family, by, by all means, showcase it. Declutter, declutter, declutter. That is uh, D. Todd D. Talbot. <laughs> Todd Talbot, uh, he's on TV tomorrow night at 10 o'clock on W Network. Watch Love It or List It Vancouver today talking about staging your home for sale. What do you want to know about the world of cycling? Regardless of what type of cycling you do, our next guest has the answer on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. Many would argue that Metro Vancouver offers some of the mildest weather and best scenery and that pedal power is a big part of the culture. No matter if you're a fair weather rider, cruiser, commuter or full on thrill seeker, cycling has never been so popular. With that in mind, we invited Graham Burns, manager of Village Bikes in Steveson to find out what's new in bicycles, accessory, parts and repairs. Good morning, Graham. Morning. Nice to have you with us. I appreciate your time today. 
problem. Talk about trends in bikes and riders. What's new and exciting? Let's talk about serious riders, commuters, fair weather riders, and, and beginners too. Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of new stuff coming out in the past couple of years. Um, in the mountain bike world, a lot of riders are turning to a one-by drivetrain, which means they have no front derailleur. Uh, so it's one by 11, new one by 12 just came out last week. So it's really pushing the envelope of what can be done with, uh, the strengths of a chain and really kind of increasing that range to keep it a little bit more reliable for the mountain bike riders. Um, that's some new on that front. And then there's the road riders who are just getting wireless shifting. It's really pushing technology and engineers every year. How does that work? Uh, How does wireless uh, shifting work? So it's a new wireless system developed. It's similar to a Bluetooth, um, but it's a completely separate signal. So there's 40,000 different signal wavelengths that wow. can be run so that these groups of 100-plus riders can all be shifting at the same time, and it's not going to shift other person's bike. Mm-hmm. That sounds really yeah. fascinating. Is, is, are, are your customers taking this up? Or are, they, are they getting into it? Uh, well, right now it's really only at like the the ten thousand dollar price point bikes. So this is a very niche market right now. Fair enough. Um, but what happens in the bike industry is trickle down. So sure. over years, so I, maybe five years from now, that technology might be into the two thousand dollar bike range, and then obviously the average consumer is going to be able to get on a bike and try that out. But at the moment, it's more in the race market. Well, with that in mind, uh, there seems to be uh, as many kinds of bicycles as there are kinds of riders. For example, as I mentioned at the outset, commuter, recreational. How do you break down the various riding categories? Well, there's the kind of the two biggest are the commuter and the road in Vancouver. In the North Shore, the mountain bike scene is one of the biggest in North America, but uh, for mainly Richmond and Vancouver, it's a lot of commuting, a lot of road racing, uh, endurance road, long distance riding, 100 kilometer plus a days, things like that. Those are kind of the biggest. And then the growing market is really the kind of just um, bikes that do it all. So someone might buy a bike for fitness, um, but then they can use that for road racing. They can use that for trail riding. They can mm-hmm. use that for basically everyday riding and then they don't need to get a mountain bike they don't need to get a separate road bike they don't need to get a separate commuter bike which is really good because then people um with low space in their apartments and only have one spot for a bike in their bike share or their bike program um, for their apartment building can have something that can really do it all around here Sure. And how do the hybrids uh, fit into this whole scenario? I myself uh, have a hybrid, and I've been very, very happy with it. I can take it a little bit off-road, and I can keep it on the road as well and and get the best of both worlds. Is that something that's taking off, or is it just strange for people like me? (laughs) That's definitely the number one selling bike is is the hybrid, something that can just do it all. So you can go down to Richmond and do the do the dike ride and then maybe go down and do the seawall where it's more paved. Uh, you can even do trails like the Endowment Lands at UBC on a hybrid. And there's so many different styles of hybrid from upright comfort bikes to uh, front suspension trail bikes. It's kind of the biggest share of the market is the hybrid. What's the price range to get into a bike like that, a hybrid, and then how far can you take it on the upper scale? <laughs> starts at around 450 um and then you can go up to about 
2000 is probably the, the priciest hybrid on the market. So you get the carbon fork and the carbon seat post, maybe higher level components like Shimano Dior. Sure. Well, yeah. So we have different types of bikes, obviously, and I was hoping you could maybe break that down a little bit and include the, the size and fit and how important that is and how you arrive at that. And then the third part of that would be the different braking systems, because that seems to be another area that's changed a lot over the past couple of years. Yeah, uh, definitely. So there's road, there's leisure riding, there's fitness. Um, the tourists around, obviously, they're kind of a different type of rider. Um, and in those range of customers, there's obviously the different styles of bikes. So there's in the road, there's adventure road, there's cyclocross, which is it's like a sport where you're on and off the bike, you're jumping over obstacles, going upstairs, things like that. Um, there's mountain biking and in mountain bike. There's a lot of disciplines as well. There's enduro, there's downhill, there's cross country. Um, there's the ever growing section of commuter cyclists in Vancouver and the surrounding areas. And they mainly ride hybrids or converted road bikes. Um, and then there's the cruiser style of bike, which is a really la- relaxed, laid back riding position. That's kind of just simple simple single speed usually maybe three speed option not exactly used for high speed but right. comfortable but a good a good commuter bike and, and it seems to be a, a style of bike that we're seeing uh, i would suggest a bit of a comeback yeah definitely yeah um everyone everyone in the 70s and early 80s knows the 10 speeds with the drop bars but those have really made a comeback in the kind of popular section of the of the bike industry because people are using them as commuters and you when you have that drop bar a lot of people think oh you're going to be in an aggressive riding position but uh they've changed the geometry of a lot of the bikes that give you really upright riding position but when you want to be a little bit more aggressive you can just go into the drops for that kind of extra power right well with more and more bikes on the roads these days how do people like yourself in the industry keep it safe or just simply promote safety? Is that something that you do as part of the, the course of your day? Oh, definitely. People, Customers often come in asking about how they should be riding on the road, um, their position in the lane, if, it's, if they have to wear a helmet, which, yes, it is the law in BC to wear a helmet. There is a fine associated with that. Um, so what cyclists really need to know is that you have to follow the same rules as as a car. So if you're unaware of that, maybe you don't have a driver's license and you're a commuter every day, maybe just read the ICBC driver's test book and that'll help you really kind of interact with drivers. It's definitely good to keep eye contact with drivers and make sure that they are making eye contact with you if you are crossing their lane or making any, um, I wouldn't say aggressive moves, but moves that, you might not feel comfortable with mm-hmm. as a as a new cyclist on the road. Yeah, it's really good to kind of just know that the cars are there and make sure they know you're there. So, yeah. well, and, and part of that is is to keep yourself visible. Exactly. So there's high vis helmets. There's high vis jackets now. Uh, lights are the law if you're riding at night or in dusk and dawn. Um, How do you feel, and and I've been wondering this myself uh, for my own riding, uh, what about lights during the day? Is it something you recommend or, I mean, you can never go wrong, I suppose, with putting lights on, but is it something you would do in the, in, let's say, the midday sun? 
personally, I always like to have a rear light just because sometimes just drivers are distracted. So it's good to have that flashing red light just to kind of get them to know you're there because sometimes you can blend in with the surroundings as you're, you're very narrow on a bike. Right. Um, and maybe the gray, most people seem to be wearing gray and black in Vancouver and <laughs> like the weather sometimes, <laughs> exactly. sometimes. So it's good to have a little pop of bright color or light on there just to kind of keep you a little bit more visible. And that would be in the back. What about the front? Just Would that be only at dusk, dawn, and in the evening? I mean, you can always have a light on. It's good to have a little flasher on the front and rear, but mainly rear during the day, I would say, but it's kind of a personal preference. Sure. The uh, more the more visible you are, the safer you are. So yeah, a front light in the day definitely can work for you. How often should your bicycle be tuned up? Uh, we recommend our customers get yearly tune-ups. If you're riding maybe weekends, a couple other days a week, a yearly tune-up should suffice. But if you're an everyday rider, commuter, uh, twice a year tune-up is definitely recommended. Yeah. So we would check your chain for wear, which is the number one uh, part on your bike that should be replaced fairly often because your chain stretches and if you don't get that chain replaced fairly quickly it's going to start to stretch the rest of your drivetrain and then that just increases your bill and i agree i, I understand that the, you know changing the chain would would require uh knowing how many k's you put on that bike but roughly speaking exactly. how often would you would you put a new chain on a bicycle just for your average uh rider average rider Probably every two, three years. Right. It really depends on condition, the weather you're riding, and how clean you're keeping your chain. That's one of the biggest factors. Sure. Okay. Um, if you're keeping your chain clean, it's going to extend the life probably double. Yeah. Only got about a minute to go here, Graham, but I wanted to ask you because the cycling industry is always reinventing itself in order to stay tuned with demand. What is trending today, apart from what we discussed earlier? Uh, what's trending is really just the kind of everyone's getting into it. So they're trying to make bikes for everyone, um, from really elderly to kids that want to commute with their parents, things like that. Um, sure. And village so bikes I, is your location. You're in a, a great old building on Moncton. We are. Village Bikes uh, in the historic fishing village of Steveston. Uh, Full-service bike shop offering new and used bikes, sales, accessories, and parts, repairs, and rentals. And I can attest to the service that you guys offer. It's about as close to perfect as perfect can get. (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Appreciate your time, Graham. Graham Burns is the manager at Village Bikes on Moncton Street in Steveston. And we'll let you go at that, and hopefully we can get a chance to get caught up again in the summertime. Sounds good. We'll take a break on Vancouver Consumer, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk to a real estate broker about some of the bad players in the business, but also, more importantly, as an ongoing issue, are real estate commissions negotiable? That's next on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Bailey is the founder and managing broker at 1% Realty. 1% Realty have offices in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and the Atlantic region. Good morning, Ian. Nice to have you on. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Um, A few questions as we explore the various options open to buyers and sellers. 
I want to start with uh, what's been happening in this market, a market like few others uh, anywhere in the world, it would be fair to say that. Um, it seems, though, that there's a few bad players that are besmirching the entire local industry. Do you have any thoughts on what's been going on, not necessarily specifically uh, with New Coast Realty, but in general, uh, is it a case of just simply old-fashioned greed? Oh, yeah, absolutely old-fashioned greed. Assuming the media stories are true, which I, I, I'm guessing they are, uh, I mean, we've had what are called, what we've always called assignments for years, and typically they were done with these pre-sale condos. You buy a condo that closes in two or three years, and your life changes in two or three years, you get pregnant or married or transferred, and they, you know, people want to sell it before they own it. So it, that's been going on. So the, the industry's been getting a bit of a bad rap. The assignments are all bad. Much of it's quite normal. Uh, but now what you're seeing, what you're, you know, the market's so crazy. And there's, you know, the, I mean, these stories out of, yeah, the, I forget the name of the company, but the one that's been in the paper so much lately, uh, if it's true, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it sounds like just sheer greed. Mm-hmm. It's not very pretty. Did you ever think that this current cycle that we're in right now would, A, last this long? And do you think, B, that a correction may be looming? Well, we've sort of, won- I mean, we've been shaking our heads since about, I don't know, what, 2004 or five or something? <laughs> and everybody kept saying, this has got to end, this has got to end. And then in 2008, we had a little blip, but it corrected pretty quickly. And it's insane. I, I got to say, I, I don't know what to say. And, and, you know, I've been in the business a long time, and I've got lots of friends who have been in the business a long time. And they all say, the same. you know, we saw 1981 when there was major carnage out there. And everybody says, oh, it's got to happen again. But I, I, you know what, Ian? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> How does a property owner best come to that all-important asking price? If they're, if they're going to list their home, how do they figure out what to ask? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, get your realtor in and get a guy with, with all the information. And it, the conventional wisdom over the years has been phone-free, three realtors, get them all in. And I think that's still good advice, assuming these media stories are true about, you know, trying to convince people to undersell their houses so they could flip them. Uh, I, that would never have occurred to me because almost always in the industry, you know, information's out there. People know roughly what their house is worth. It's very rare you meet an owner who doesn't have a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. And the data is all out there and very open. And if you get three realtors in, I'm guessing in 95, 98% of the cases, the data is going to be identical. Yeah. You know, you don't, I've never heard of people intentionally omitting information to try to convince the seller of, you know, to undersell their house so they could buy it or something. It's just, it, it, I, I, it's, it's shocking, truly. The question I've been asking, uh, Ian Bailey, is uh, I've been asking brokers and realtors alike, uh, are real estate fees negotiable? And I think the answer in your case would simply be no. Uh, That said, you've come up with what could easily be called, and I hope I'm correct when I say uh, you have a discount model for sellers that, that seems to make some sense and has obviously been working for you for a number of years. Yeah, we're coming up on, I don't know, 17, 18 years, something like that. Yeah, we do the same job for less money than the conventional guys. And, I mean, in a market like we're in, 
like the numbers are staggering. You're you know you're selling houses for two, three, four, five million dollars. People are paying one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in commission, and the night they list it, they're all of the understanding. Okay, we're, it's it's Wednesday today, and we're going to have an open house on Sunday, and on Tuesday we'll look at all the offers. So you got five days in there, and mm. and 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 you're going to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars, seemingly quite happily, uh, which in my opinion you don't need to. Yeah, you know, one, we, at one percent, even you know, we're we're not we're not crying about being underpaid. It's not like we're working for minimum wage or anything. It's uh, it is amazing. But so, anyway, uh, just make sure you get all the data would be my advice. And 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 I I wouldn't hesitate to get a couple or three people in just so you make sure you're not missing anything. Yeah. So we're not going to have to have a garage sale for one percent realty anytime soon. I hope not. <laughs> An yeah, auction? Let, you'll be the first to know. A silent auction or something. Uh, the thing mm-hmm. is, is that I, I have talked to a couple, as I said, I've been soliciting this with other brokers and, and uh, real estate agents, realtors. Uh, I asked them about the discount model that 1% Realty um, uses. And, and a lot of these people, surprisingly, or maybe not to you surprisingly, say, you know, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. I wouldn't even show a house that was listed by 1%. Well, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, we're on MLS, we're on all the top websites, we've got a sign on the lawn, and especially in a market where product is limited, there's, you know, there's, by all accounts, there's a scarcity of listings. So, you know what, realtors sell 80% of our listings every year, and they say what they might for obvious reasons, and uh, at the end of the day, they're selling 80% of our listings. So they have to come up with something to say to discredit us. And, uh, you know, we keep our head down and try to play by the rules and just do deals and, you know, make money. What is your model at 1% Realty? Well, it's 1% of the sale price of the property plus $900 that covers the basic expenses of the listings. MLS fees, title search, some basic advertising and admin costs. Uh, if the property is worth less than $600,000, we charge all the same, which is a flat fee of 6900 which once again is the $900 for the expenses, and then the commission is $6,000, which is split 50-50. So we, if we sell it, we get $3,000 commission, and the other guy gets $3,000 commission, or if it's over 600 it's a flat 1% commission plus 900 and uh, we split it 50-50. So it's not like we're ripping off the other guy. We're we're working for half of one percent, and you know we think it's sufficient compensation. So, uh, you know, it's not some bait and switch program or something like that. Well, you started with one little office here in Vancouver, and you seem to have spread right across most of this country, which covers a, a fair amount of land space and a lot of people. There must be something to what you're doing that works. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, we're, we're just, we've tweaked the system a little bit. We're operating under the same guidelines, same rules, same insurance, same everything, same contracts you sign, be it your listing contract or your purchase of sale or contract of purchase and sale. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing we're not doing that, that, you know, we ought to be. And, uh, you know, everybody's chugging along. There's this perception, Ian, that if you go to a so-called discount broker like 1% Realty, that you won't get the same level of service that you would get from somebody who's charging seven and two and a half or whatever formula they have, which is a lot higher. No, that's exactly what they say, that we don't provide the same service. But I'll honestly say, and it's not 100% of our guys, but many of our top guys, they go an extra mile because they, they know that's out there, that's what's getting said. 
So in many cases, they're doing more than the other guys, just because, because everybody says, well, you can't, and they say, here it is, here's on listing contract, I know you're aware, uh, there's what's called a Schedule A, which outlines all the, you know, all the services you're going to provide. Mm-hmm. So we collect, you know, we're competing for listings all the time. You see the other guy's presentation, and we see their Schedule A, and we go, okay, what is it that they're doing that we're not? I mean, it's on paper. It's not something that we can trick you on. Every, it's on every single real estate contract in the province when you list your house. Here's, here's what the guy's going to do. He's going to do opens once a week, or he's going to do this, or he's going to do a virtual tour. It's, it's out there. It's quantified, and there's no, there's no hokey pokey. How savvy are people today when it comes to buying and selling real estate? It seems to me with the internet and and all of the resources that are at everybody's fingertips that it's pretty hard to fool most people. Oh, absolutely. The information is out there. And you don't, if you're out buying a condo or a house or whatever, you're not driving around with your realtor anymore. That's from the 50s, right? It's now... Everybody's online. It's realtor.ca. Every listing in the country is on that website, pretty much. And so that's where you're looking. You may well engage a realtor, not the listing realtor, but you know your own agent to represent you in the in the in the deal. But uh, you're not out driving around with them. The listings are out there. And and if there's four, you're looking in a certain neighborhood in a certain price range. There's four for sale. You're going to look at all four every time. The buyer doesn't care about commission or even really care to understand it. It's just, I, I, there's the house I want. It's three bedrooms and it's near the kid's school. Yeah, exactly. Got to leave it there. Uh, there's plenty more to ask, but we'll leave it for another time. Ian Bailey is the founder and managing broker at 1% Realty with offices now in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and the Atlantic region. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, we'll look forward to another opportunity in the future. Thank you very much talking to you. Stay with us. Vancouver Consumer continues. Next, we'll talk about speculation on agricultural land reserve. Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW. The purchase of agricultural land for estate homes and possible speculation are among the factors driving up prices of Metro Vancouver farmland and threatening the viability of local farming, so says a new report from Van City Credit Union. The report, Home on the Range, Cost Pressures and the Price of Farmland in Metro Vancouver, found the average price per acre for farms under five acres far exceeds what is financially viable for most farms. Farmland prices in Metro Vancouver range from 150000 to 350000 per acre for parcels less than five acres. The financial viability of many farm businesses in B.C. becomes questionable when land prices reach $80,000 per acre, according to Farm Credit Canada. Rising residential land prices in urban centres also affect the price of nearby parcels of agricultural land, particularly those less than 10 acres, which may be purchased as estate homes and qualify for tax advantages with minimal farming activity. Joining us this morning by phone is Brent Mansfield, Director, BC Food Systems Network. Good morning and thank you for your time. Hi, Ian. A pleasure to join you. Give us an idea of who you are and uh, how you came to publish this report. For sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the director of the BC Food Systems Network, which is a provincial network uh, working to develop and advance uh, healthy, just, and sustainable food systems in BC. This is actually the, the second report. This report I co-authored with a team from uh, Kwantlen Polytechnic University, but this is the second report um, I, uh, I've, I've written for, for Van City, and this one kind of builds off the first one as we wanted to 
explore further into some of the, the challenges and barriers towards developing a more local uh, food system, which is more uh, resilient to, uh, to climate change and drought. The last report kind of focused on the, the impact of the drought in California and our, our reliance on imports for, for a lot of our, uh, especially fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. So your concern is primarily food source uh, rather than real estate per se. Yeah, my my prime interest, and I I bring what I would call a food system lens, right? So all these other issues are matter, but I'm particularly interested in on how they are impacting food, uh, whether that's the good jobs in the agriculture sector, whether that's uh, the access of of, of eaters to be able to to ensure that they get all the nutrition that they need uh, in their daily life. The implications of this report are quite far-reaching. It certainly made me think, uh, what I have long suspected is that a lot of the ALR is being bought up by speculators, and I think that this is what's been brought to light. Yeah, and I mean, I think the report points in a lot of directions. I, I wish we had more answers than the, the additional questions we had, because one of the, the key things that came out of it is really the need to gather additional information on farm ownership and land use in the ALR. It, 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 it actually was a little bit... Uh, I'll say disturbing of, of how hard it is to find out that information. I gotta, I just got to stop, Brent. As many questions as it did answers. Sorry, I just got to stop you right there just for a moment. Please stay with us. We have some CKNW breaking news. And this just in, the 1,776 delegates of the federal NDP convention have voted and 52% have voted for a leadership review. That means only 48% supported existing party leader Tom Mulcair. It comes hours after he made one final pitch to stay on as party leader. Mulcair did accept the blame for the mistakes of last year's disappointing election campaign. The rift over his leadership was evident with some stepping up and expressing support during his speech while others stayed strong stone-faced and seated more at noon. Thank you, Matt Lee. Breaking news on CKNW and more to come at uh, the top of the hour in about uh, nine minutes. Uh, Brent Mansfield, our guest on the line, director of BC Food Systems Network. Uh, Sorry, we had to break in for that important uh, news item. Uh, back to the, the question of uh, speculators buying up farmland in the, AL, uh, the ALR uh, what do we do to stop it, or can we stop it? Should we stop it, and, and what's the consequence? It seems obvious if we lose this land. Yeah, I mean, I, should we stop it? That, that's the easiest of those questions. The answer is yes, right? Our, uh, our ability to feed ourselves uh, from close to home, which is in, increasingly important in, in, in changing times, whether that's climate or politically or even just financial instability. What can we do? There's actually a, a lot that we can do, and, and the Agricultural Land Reserve uh, was put into place to protect agricultural land. And I think it's still doing quite a good job of doing that. What we need to do is look at policy solutions that address the high cost of farmland, that look at how we actually encourage uh, active farming of that farmland and discourage um, kind of non-legitimate non-farm uses, right? Um, which, which in a state home would be one of them. So there, there are a number of actions that, uh, that, that, that industry and, and governments, local, regional and provincial, can take together to be able to address these, some of these issues. Some of these we pointed to in the report are around uh, taxation. So you, you alluded to this, Ian. But in terms of the, the threshold by which you can achieve farm class status and therefore a lower tax percentage, I, I think we need to ask questions whether it's high enough to actually be incentivizing farming or it's actually encouraging minimal farming on farmland. So is it serving the end that we want it to? Uh, there's also some, uh, some things that municipalities have been picking up in part around kind of a 
the, the farm home plate. So the size and location of where a farm uh, farmhouse can be placed on farmland and discouraging what would be an estate home based on size and placement. You know, obviously, if a, if a farmer purchases a piece of land and they, they want their family to be able to live there, housing is super important. But we also can look at uh, what bylaws um, can be supported that would actually ensure that that housing is actually serving the purpose of the farm rather than, you know, a farm minimally serving the purpose of this, this, this house that is, is not actually actively supporting farming. Right. Um, I, know, I, mean, uh, I get that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a, another big one, and I, I, I named this, but it's just the importance of having more information. I think it's, it's actually critical that we, we gather additional information with the full cooperation of, of researchers, of local government and provincial government to gather more information on farm ownership and land use within the ALR. And really to be able to be making good decisions um, at the local government level, but also the provincial government level, we need to make sure we're, we have that information and those decisions can be made well. And the public is aware uh, of this critically important issue. Now, it seems to me, and I'm no expert, but perhaps you can, you can set me straight, anybody who's listening right now, it seems to me that we are not doing enough of producing our own food, that a lot of our agricultural land is not being used for its intended purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a both. I, I, for me, I, I don't feel comfortable with the level of, of self-reliance we have, right? So it's not about eliminating all imports. That, 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 that's not the goal of this. But I think we... We need to become more balanced in what, per, what food we're able to produce closer to home for reasons of, of climate change and drought, for reasons of kind of, uh, you know, financial instability, all these other issues. And, and I think we do need to be doing more. And I, I think this is a very important public issue. Uh, last time I checked, hopefully as many of us are possible are, are eating three times a day and are eating uh, good local fruits and vegetables and meats and all these other things. But we need to, just as much as we need to care about you know, our food and what we put on our bodies and how that supports the, you know, local farmers. This is something we in, in Greater Vancouver and BC, I think, care a lot about. We need to be caring about land use and farmland and, and how to make sure that that farmland, which this progressive policy of the Agricultural Land Reserve has protected, we need to make sure that it's doing all that it can to, uh, in, you know, contribute to the local economy here in our region, but also to make sure that it's, uh, you know, growing good local food for all of us. I think a good example is when the American dollar reached its its highest peak just recently, and we saw yep. the prices of imported uh, produce, for example, go sky high. Yep. Uh, could we have done a better job to save ourselves the grease? Because when prices were going up as much as 70% on some products, some people would have had to make the choice that, no, I'm going to have to do without that fruit or, or and vegetable or whatever uh, other produce or kind of food that they were buying. Yeah, and, and that's where, I mean, I think the loony, which is something, you know, it, it, as a consumer, how much control do we have over that? It can, can go up and down. And anytime we're importing anything across an international border, we're going to be facing that, right? And, and I think so many of us, you know, our, our budgets are, are budgeted to a certain way that we, we have this much for food, right? This is, this is a public health issue. If, if we're able to afford and not afford food and, and make choices between these things, and these are these are hard choices, right? And 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 not to mention the broad public impact, where many people in our province are already struggling to be able to afford healthy food, right? Mm-hmm. When we're when we're seeing this fluctuation, um, this becomes all the more issue for uh, for those who are who are already struggling and uh, you know aren't able to afford healthy food because of their income level. At what level would you like to see us more sustainable or at least self-sustainable? And you mentioned that you you're not interested in seeing a, an elimination of imports, but is there a point that you would like to see us at where we're a little bit more self-sufficient? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's always hard to put a kind of a number or percentage on this, but it's, it, it's an active conversation. You know, I, I think we could we would be feeling a lot better if we were in the range of, you know, 60 to 70 percent self-reliant if we could get there. And that's that's not going to happen overnight. And, and and actually, you know, as I speak around data around, uh, you know, farm ownership and egg, uh, land use with the agricultural land reserve, we actually don't have all the data we need to be able to give a very clear number of how self-reliant we are. Mm. Right? So part of it is this is critical information, right? To, to know how secure we are in being able to feed ourselves, to know how, uh, you know, farmland, one of the, you know, critical resources in, in this whole puzzle, we need to actually understand more information. And this is where I think it's, it's a significant public issue. We really need to understand what's happening. We need to make smart decisions that, that protect um, the security of our food supply. Got about 30 second, uh Brent Mansfield, uh, BC Food Systems Network. Uh, where does your funding primarily come from? Yeah, so uh, a combination of uh, charitable foundations that uh, gratefully support us, as well as we have membership. And then we also, I, I do some, we do some work as kind of fee-for-service for uh, local governments and other partners around how we can support them in kind of building their capacity to develop food policy to address some of these issues. Really appreciate your time this morning and, and for the opportunity to shed some light on the work that you're doing, this uh, recent re- report, which is available, by the way, on the Van City website. I would recommend anybody have a look at it and just find out exactly what is going on with the a- a- ALR. And I, I personally fear that some of that land may be in jeopardy if uh, if the government has its way, but I, I have nothing to, to to really substantiate that. It's just a feeling I have, and I see this uh, this kind of speculation going on all around, and so it does have me concerned. And hopefully, we've been able to shed some light on it. So, I, with that, I say thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for joining. Brent Mansfield, director of the BC Food Systems Network. Greg Schott has been our technical producer today. Stay with us. Shane Foxman is coming up next with CKNW Weekend. More on the NDP convention in Edmonton, of course. My name is Ian Power. Thank you for sharing your time with Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW.